0: Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. Welcome to the Revisionist History Shortcast, some revisionism of my revisionism, where I distill my audio explorations of the overlooked and misunderstood and find a few lessons along the way. I want you to think about your favorite song. I'll give you a few seconds. Got it? Good. Now imagine that song never existed. What would your life be missing? I ask this because, for me, my favorite songs have the power to move me in a way little else can. But here's the twist. There's one song I absolutely love, but for over a decade I despised. What changed? Well, the song did. And that's what this episode is about. Why sometimes the best creative work takes time And persistence before it's fully realized. In 1984, Elvis Costello released his ninth album, Goodbye Cruel World. And this episode is about one song on that album. It's called The Deportees Club. I still have it on vinyl. It goes like this. Oh, God, it's awful. I'm a massive Elvis Costello fan, and believe me when I say, Goodbye, Cruel World was unlistenable. Especially Deportees Club. It was angry and loud and upsetting. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. In 1995, the album is re-released by Disc Records, and Elvis Costello writes in the liner notes, Congratulations, you've just purchased our worst album. Except... On that same re-release, Costello includes a new version of Deportee's Club, an acoustic version, shortens the title to Deportee, fiddles with some of the lyrics, and I become obsessed with it. I'll bet I sing parts of it to myself almost every day. I don't really know why, but it might be one of my favorite songs ever. That's what I want to talk about. Time and iteration— I know that this is just one three-minute song, but every time I hear it, I think the same thing, which is, this is something that gives a lot of people in the world pleasure, including me. And if Elvis Costello doesn't go back and revisit Deportee's club, turn it into Deportee, we miss all that beauty. And the thought of that breaks my heart. There's a theory about creativity that I've always loved. It's an idea that an economist named David Galenson came up with. Galenson is an art lover, and it strikes him when looking at modern art that there are two very different trajectories that great artists seem to take. On the one hand, there are those who do their best work very early in their life. They tend to work quickly. They have very specific ideas that they want to communicate, and they can articulate those ideas clearly. They plan precisely and meticulously, then they execute. Boom. Galenson calls them conceptual innovators. Picasso is a great example. He bursts on the scene in his early 20s and electrifies the art world at the turn of the last century. But Galenson says wait a minute, there's another kind of creativity. He calls it experimental innovation. Experimental innovators are people who never have a clear, easily articulated idea, they don't work quickly. When they start off, they don't really know where they're going. They work by trial and error. They do endless drafts. They're perpetually unsatisfied. It can take them a lifetime to figure out what they want to say. Who's a good example? Cezanne. Every bit as famous and important a painter as Picasso may be the greatest of the Impressionists who reinvent modern art in Paris in the late 1800s. But Cezanne's genius and Picasso's genius, they could not be more different. Cezanne didn't work according to some clear, linear plan. He basically just did versions, over and again, iteration after iteration, trying to stumble on something that seized his imagination. Cezanne was never finished. This is what David Galenson means by experimental genius. And Galenson points out that you can see this creative type in virtually every field. But there's one field where I think Galenson's theory plays out the most powerfully. And that's music. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift.
1: The baffled king hallelujah.
0: That's the song hallelujah. It was composed by the Canadian songwriter Leonard Cohen, but basically everybody has done a cover of hallelujah. You too, Jeff Buckley, Bon Jovi, John Cale, Bob Dylan, Rufus Wainwright, I could go on. And here's what's interesting about that song. It is so not Picasso. It is Cezanne. Textbook Cezanne. A few years ago, the music writer Alan Light wrote an absolutely wonderful book on the song Hallelujah. It's called The Holy or the Broken. And one of the big themes is how peculiar Leonard Cohen is. He's a poet, a tortured poet.
1: He sort of was chasing some idea with this song and couldn't find it and just kept writing and writing that's Alan
0: like he came by my house one day to talk about hallelujah
1: leonard cohen and bob dylan have this kind of mutual admiration in the 80s at some point dylan said oh i like that song hallelujah how long do you work on that and leonard said i told him uh, two years
0: which was a lie cohen later confessed it took him much longer then cohen asks dylan how long it took him to write the song i and i
1: And Bob said, yeah, 15 minutes.
0: Dylan is Picasso.
1: With Leonard, it's not the first thought, best thought school at all.
0: Leonard Cohen spends five years writing Hallelujah. He finally records it in 1984. It's for an album called Various Positions. When Cohen finishes recording the songs, he takes them to his record label, which is CBS, to the head of CBS, who's this legendary figure named Walter Yetnikoff, who's the guy who releases Michael Jackson's Thriller and Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Not a dumb guy. Yetnikov listens to Cohen's songs and says, what is this? We're not releasing it. It's a disaster. The album ends up being released by the independent label Passport Records. It barely makes a ripple. And if you go back and listen to that first Hallelujah and try to forget how beautiful future versions would be, the song's failure makes sense. It's not there yet. (laughs) Purge it, isn't it? But Cohen's not done. He keeps tinkering with it. The song becomes even darker this time around.
1: Yeah, and your flag on the marble.
0: One night, Cohen is playing this version at the Beacon Ballroom in New York, and the musician John Cale happens to be in the audience. And he's blown away. He wants to do a version of it, and Cale changes some words. Most importantly, he changes the theme— and brings back the biblical references that Cohen had in the album version.
1: Maybe there's a God above All I ever learned from
0: love is really the one who cracks the code of Hallelujah, according to Alan Light. This cover version appears on a Leonard Cohen tribute album put together by a French music magazine. It was called I'm Your Fan. It came out in 1991. Almost nobody bought I'm Your Fan, except, weirdly, Me, Another person who bought I'm Your Fan was a woman named Janine. She was good friends with a young, aspiring singer named Jeff Buckley. He used to house-sit at her apartment. And one time, when Buckley's there, he happens to see the CD of I'm Your Fan. He plays it. He hears John Cale's version of Hallelujah and decides to do his own version of that version. And he records his version of Hallelujah for the album Grace, which ends up being Buckley's first and only studio album. It came out in
1: 1994. remember when I moved in you, and the holy dove was moving too, And every breath hallelujah
0: Now I'm guessing that Buckley's version is the one you're most familiar with. It's the famous one, the definitive one. Every subsequent cover, and there have been hundreds, are really covers of Buckley covering kale covering
1: Cohen. You know, as you hit the new century, that's when the snowball kind of starts. The first few covers, the first few soundtrack placements. It's 15 years since Leonard recorded this song.
0: Fifteen years. And think about how many incredible twists and turns that song takes before it gets recognized as a work of genius. Elvis Costello. Deportee in its original flawed form. It comes out in 1984, the same year, by the way, that Hallelujah first came out. And I'm not sure that's a coincidence because 1984 is a very particular moment in pop music. The biggest album of that year was Michael Jackson's Thriller, Pop Music Gloss to Perfection. There's not a single stray note or emotion on that record. It's the antithesis of songs like Hallelujah or Deportee. Costello writes a series of dark, Emotional, bitter songs Gritty and spare To match his mood Something not 1984 But the label wants a big commercial hit So they turn to the hit makers Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley.
1: Every little bit Was pondered over And, you know, thought about And put together very carefully We were trying to make pop perfection
0: That's Langer We met at a pub on Lauriston Road In Hackney, North London I mean, even the band were kind of not very excited by some of the material. So it wasn't a great experience, but we did it very quickly. It was a mess. Perfectionism in a hurry. That's how you get to the bitter words, congratulations, you've just bought my worst album. But it's what happens next that matters. You know how people always say, put your failures behind you, get on with your life, never look back? Alvis Costello does none of those things. Because he says on. He's not Picasso. He changes lines in the middle of songs he's already recorded. He rearranges songs at different tempos or in different time signatures. He cannibalizes his own work, creating new songs out of old songs. And thank God there are people like him and Cezanne in this world, because without the obsessives and the perpetually dissatisfied and the artists who go back over and over again, repainting what others see as finished, we would never have seen the beauty of Deportee. Can we play it? Yeah. I'm in the pub with Clive Langer. Strangely, he'd never heard the new, obscure, and amazing version of the song he produced so long ago. So I found it on my iPhone, and Langer leaned his head over the table so that his ear would be right next to the tiny phone speaker. There's a and talking, riddles, and you
1: know,
0: it sounds like he's found the song. Party, 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 party. You know what my favorite part of this story is? It's this: there is no one way to be creative, and creativity, like all the best things in life often takes work. It's easy to be discouraged if something you're working on isn't an instant hit or doesn't feel complete. But that doesn't mean it never will. Comparing ourselves to conceptual innovators can leave us feeling inadequate. But remember, whether it takes you 15 days, 15 months, or even 15 years to see your ideas reach a place where you're satisfied, you're in good company. Take pleasure in that process. It's half the fun. And you know what else is fun? Listening to Revisionist History Shortcasts, and I've got you covered. Take a listen to the episode, A Good Walk Spoiled, to learn what happens when golf and philosophy collide, and why we all end up paying.